This episode of the Holly Field Nutrition Podcast is brought to you by Scratch Labs. To save 20% off your Scratch Labs purchase, visit the link in the show notes and use code HOLLY20, that's H-O-L-L-E-Y-2-0 for 20% off at checkout. Hello, everyone. My name is Holly Samuel, and I'm a registered dietitian, certified personal trainer, and Boston Marathon finisher times two, and your podcast host today. And if you can't tell already, (laughs) um, this episode is going to be covering my recap of the Boston Marathon 2023. Um, It is Tuesday. It is the day after Marathon Monday. (laughs) And I am recording this so that I will hopefully remember everything pretty freshly from the day because I have so many thoughts I want to share. You guys have overwhelmingly for actually like months been telling me that I need to do a recap episode for the Boston Marathon again because you loved my recap episode from last year and also my recap episodes of races in general. Um, And I was like, well, gee, like I hope I make it to the start line so I can recap this race. So Really pumped to be here and have a chance to reflect on everything that went down on April uh, 17th, 2023, Patriots Day, Marathon Monday. And if you guys saw my posts on social media, um, if you've been following me along there, or if you tracked me on like the Boston Marathon app, you know that I had a pretty freaking good day. Um, So... (laughs) Again, got to try and remember all the details for you guys because I have a lot of thoughts. So, first and foremost, let's uh let's let's go back in time a little bit. So, um the last marathon, full marathon that I ran was a year ago, the Boston Marathon um in 2022. That was my first ever Boston Marathon. If you want to learn about like the Boston Marathon itself, qualifying how one gets an entry and a bib to the Boston Marathon and more thoughts on what got me there. Um, make sure you go back a year and check out that episode. It's still there. <laughs> so scroll on back, check out that episode, and then kind of fast forward to the future for this one. Um, but that's the last marathon that I ran. Um, and if you did listen to that episode, or if you follow me, you know that that race was um I mean, one of the best days of my life. (laughs) Um, It was incredible. I had an incredible first Boston Marathon experience. It's the type of day and Boston Marathon experience I would want everyone to have because it was just, it was awesome. It just lived up to the hype. It had taken me a while to get there. It had taken me several Boston Marathon rejection letters, even though I had qualified several times before actually getting to run the race. Um, and then the race itself went great. I got a PR on the Boston course. I requalified. Um, I negative split the course, had a really good day. So basically I was like, okay, I'm like good <laughs> until Boston 2023. That's the next marathon that I want to run. Um, and so that's what I did. I trained for a half marathon in the fall. Um, I did a recap episode on the Seacoast half marathon that I ran in October. So you can go check that out. If you kind of want a good summary of what my training looked like between Boston and my half marathon PR in the fall. Um, and then I'm going to kind of fast forward to now from October. (laughs) So basically I'm someone who, doesn't really like to run more than one or two marathons in a calendar year. Um, 
they just really beat me up. <laughs> um, I try really hard to train really hard for them. I don't really like fun running marathons. Um, I find that if I'm going to put this much time and effort and pounding on my body, um, I really want it to be, you know, something that I'm proud of. And right now for me, that means trying to run as fast as I can. Um, and having that hopefully equate to a personal best. So you can't really run a personal best if you're running more than like one or maybe two marathons a year, right? Like even if you look at elite athletes, like a lot of them aren't running personal bests every single time they run a marathon, they're just trying to compete. Um, and they don't really race more than like two marathons a year and that's their full-time job, right? So us mere mortals don't really have any business <laughs> trying to run two or three or four marathons in a year and try to PR all of them. Like that's just a recipe for burnout and injury, um, which I know all too well, um, to quote Miss Taylor, Allison Swift. And, um, I see a lot of runners make that mistake and really burn themselves out and dig themselves into a bit of a health and symptom and nutrient deficiency, uh, hole, if you will. So I, and picky about what marathons I run. So that being said, that's why I qualified. I was like, sweet. I had run, um, two marathons in that calendar year. I'd run wine glass in 2021 in the fall and then turned around and ran Boston, um, 2022 in the spring. So I was like, okay, like it's time for me to take like a year off of marathoning. I got what I wanted out of those races. <clears throat> so, you know, they, my, I, you know, really owe my body a bit of a break and we can focus on, a shorter, faster distance. And hopefully that will pay off in the long run, quote unquote, pun intended for marathon training. And it did. <laughs> so take with that what you will. That is my recommendation for most of my athletes who want to run all the marathons and always do two a year. I typically advise against that, at least not doing that two years in a row, because I see so many people burn themselves out plateau and then end up having to take a lot of time off or dig themselves out of a very deep health hole, if you will. So I was really excited when I qualified at Boston last year because I was like, all right, five minute buffer. Hopefully that's good enough. And it was. I got in this year, exact same wave in Corral, um, even though I was a couple, couple minutes faster with my qualification time. And I was just really excited. So um, when I did cross the finish line of Boston in 2022, again, if you heard that recap, you know it was the most perfect day ever. Um, I literally crossed the finish line and like Meb Kofleski was standing in like a ray of sunshine over the finish. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, like the weather was perfect. My training was perfect. Everything was perfect. And this will probably never all come together again like this. Um, and I wouldn't say that this year was it all coming together perfectly, um, even though it may appear that way on paper. There were some extra challenges this year that I'll get into, but I am thrilled that it did come together really well again. And I just really love the Boston Marathon. Um, so going into training this year, I was like, okay, don't compare your experience to past Boston Marathon because that one truly was a unicorn. It was your first time. Like it was awesome. Just take it for what it is and try to make you know, this race experience, its own person. <laughs> um, so that was kind of the mindset I went into training with this with. And um, I'm glad I did because I really think it gave it a chance to kind of stand on its own. But I did definitely take some things that I learned from 2022. So to kind of go through my training, um, I had a, I have a chronic low back and hamstring 
issue. I'm not even going to call it an injury um, because it's something that I've pretty much always been able to train through. I haven't really had to take time off, um, but I also haven't gotten super concrete, solid (laughs) advice for it, to be honest. It's just something that I've kind of managed. It's better when I strength train and don't sit a lot, Um, but sometimes it just flares. We can't really tell why. And I was having some right hamstring issues um, basically in the fall when I was training for that half marathon. And it limited the last couple of weeks of my training. Cause if you've had hamstring issues, you know, that running fast and far are like, and on Hills, you know, Oh God. Um, it's like the Boston marathon matrix, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not great for hamstring. So I was having some issues with that going into my half marathon that were coming and going. And when I had had them in the past, you know, I had gotten advice from different physical therapists, chiropractors, um, my strength coach, um, who's also my running coach, to, you know, really work on strengthening my hips and my hamstrings. And, you know, a couple of years ago when this first happened to me, I was like, sure, like I could definitely stand to strengthen these areas more, like for sure could be caused by weakness, even though I was like, I already know I strength train more than most runners. Um, cause I work with a lot of runners who don't strength train. Um, I was like, yeah, I could probably stand, you know, to make myself a little stronger. Like that's not going to hurt anyone. <laughs> so That's what I did. So when this was happening again, knowing that I was way stronger, knowing that I had actually had like a pretty good hiatus of not having any issues for probably nine months, um, I was really frustrated (laughs) when this started happening again, because, you know, when it happens, I have no confidence in my speed work abilities. I really have no confidence in my ability to like push myself and I'm someone who thrives on pushing myself. So it's just a very tough mental space for me to be in, even though I'm grateful that I can usually like run easy and keep up my mileage and like strength train and do my activities of daily living pretty okay. It's still like anxiety provoking. Um, I have a lot of injury anxiety because of these issues. So I was just like frustrated (laughs) when it was happening again and I didn't really know why. Um, So in my off season through the winter, I had tried to gain just other people on my team. I had had a massage therapist in 2022 who I saw for the Boston Marathon in addition to working with my coach. Um, and that combo just seemed to help me a ton. Like I didn't have any hamstring issues. I I was doing really well. Um, he actually then moved <laughs> to Florida like in June of 2022 and I was fine. So I wasn't like too panicky about that because that nothing was really going wrong. I was in my off season. I was like, good to go. So when this started happening again, I was like, Oh no, like I have to find someone to help me. Um, cause I'm, you know, I'm doing what my strength and running coach is telling me to do. And I don't think that's hurting me, but like, it's something that clearly is not enough <laughs> and we're missing something. We're both trying to communicate on how to figure that out and who to kind of pull in to help support us with that. Um, so I saw two different chiropractors, um, a massage therapist and a physical therapist. And the chiropractor and the massage therapist were um, good humans. I don't know how to put this. Like, they listened to me. They didn't totally gaslight me, but they also didn't really help me that much. Um, and it's not that I'm trying to show sh- throw shade at them, but like they just weren't. You know, nothing was really changing. Um, one of the physical therapists that I saw did downright gaslight me, like told me I must not be doing my strength training. Like I must be just skipping it. I was like, dude, I strength train five days a week. I've done PT for this. Like, no, you're not talking to me like this. Um, didn't go back to him. 
he basically told me not to sit down ever again. I was like, well, I have to commute an hour to get here. So I have to sit in the car for two hours when I come to see you. So that's not going to work. Um, so that was just really disheartening. And I felt kind of like lost and confused and honestly wasn't super confident I was going to start the Boston Marathon this year. Um, or at least I wasn't confident that I was going to be able to race it to the capacity that I wanted to. Like, I was like, this is probably going to be like a fun, a fun run marathon. I'm probably going to be fine running it easy, but like my hamstrings probably going to bother me the whole time that I'm doing it. And I don't know why, and I'm doing everything that I know how to do. And it's just not working. Like I've worked with people with clients who have hamstring issues and they're nagging, but if they do the strength work and it's truly like a hamstring issue, like I've seen people get better and like move on from it. And I'm like, why can't I do that? <laughs> like, why isn't that working for me? Like I'm one of the most dedicated, like disciplined, obedient, um, patients like out there. Like I'm a very good patient and client. I will do what you say to a T a plus, like I want the gold star. Like it's not going to be my fault that something's not working because I just didn't do it. <laughs> right. So I was really frustrated. Um, so on a whim, <laughs> um, my parents had actually been going to a physical therapist, um, pretty close to us, just over the border, um, in York, Maine. And, um, my parents were going to her for very different things. My dad's got like some rotator cuff issues and my mom has some just complications from past surgeries that she's had. Um, and she had injured like her knee over the summer. So they're not like runners. They weren't going to her for running injuries. So my mom had told me to go to her in the past that, and that she really liked her. And I was like, okay, like maybe I was like doing okay. So I didn't really have the fire under my butt to go see anyone. Um, and then as this started happening more and I was having just lingering hamstring issues, even during my easy runs. And I was like, I really don't know what to do about this. This isn't going away. This it's getting closer to Boston. Like I can't execute my speed work really frustrated. I was finally like, you know what, let me just go to this person that my parents love. Like my mom's um, had a lot of medical issues throughout her life. So she's really picky about like who touches her. <laughs> um, and I was like, that's gotta be, you know, good news enough that she's been going to this person for several months now and like really loves her. So let me just give it a shot, even though I don't really know her. Um, like, let's just try it out. And you guys, when, when I tell you that I went to this person, her name is Jess, Dr. Jess Lieberman of Maine Ascent, um, physical therapy. It's a private practice, um, in York, Maine, go see her. Um, Jess, if you're listening, I love you. Um, when I tell you that I felt more seen and like understood and heard in a couple email exchanges, just to kind of tell her what was going on and see if like she could help me than like any other person, <laughs> like besides for, um, my coach, Kim had like done for me. I was like, oh my gosh, like this is probably going to go well. Let me just go see her. And when I tell you, I walked in with like probably like four or five out of 10 hamstring and back pain. And that by the end of that day, I had no pain. <laughs> like, I was just like, oh my God, where have you been all my life for years? Like she just, she listened and she figured it out <laughs> like in a day. It was awesome. Um, like I haven't really quite had that happen before um, for like a chronic issue. I've had it happen before with like acute issues um, that are very black and white to fix, but never with like 
<laughs> never with like something like this. And I was just like, oh my God, you are now my person. You are in my corner and I'm never letting you go. Please never move. <laughs> um, you know, it was just great. So that was probably in like the end of February, beginning of March. It was pretty close to Boston. <laughs> so I was like, oh, we're in business. Like, again, when I tell you, I went from not being able to really confidently do my easy runs to being able to do like long tempo runs at race pace with no pain. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> um, so anyway, I had to give that backstory because honestly, this, this day that I'm going to recap for you would not have happened without this physical therapist. So find yourself a good PT, kiss a lot of frogs to find the gem that you deserve. Um, because if you're being gaslit by someone, or you just don't feel comfortable with someone, um, it's just, it's not worth your time. <laughs> so find someone else. Uh, that's my, my main message here. So once I kind of was able to get all that in check, me and my coach were like, Oh, sweet. Like let's freaking go. And we really put in probably like four or five weeks of really solid training, like long runs with race pace efforts, um, on Hills, like everything was just clicking. And I was finding like paces in like the seven twenties and seven thirties, pretty comfortable and easy. Um, and that's like minute per mile. Um, so I was like, what am I going to be capable of for this marathon? Like, this is just not how I thought it was going to go. And I'm so happy about that because things are finally clicking and I'm going to get what I want. Um, so that being said, if you want a little insight to what my training is like with my coach, Kim Nadeau, um, you can go back to my, my previous Boston recap or my previous half marathon recap from last year. Cause I talk a lot about it there. And honestly, it wasn't much different. We did four days a week of strength training. Um, we did five days a week of running. I never ran more than like 47 miles a week. Um, I did two workouts a week once my hamstring was feeling good. Um, I did hills like that's it. <laughs> like it wasn't anything super complicated. Um, so if you want more details on that, like just go back and check those out. Cause we didn't really do much differently. We just had to get my body cooperating so that I could execute these things and recover well, which I did. And I will say one contrast with going into this Boston Marathon, which kind of brings me back to my first point of this podcast episode compared to my last Boston Marathon, is that I did feel like maybe 2% overcooked going into my last Boston Marathon. And I don't think that had anything to do with my training or my nutrition or anything like that. I just think it was because I had done a marathon the previous fall. And I was a little overcooked. Like I was just like ready for a break. Um, and my body was trying to whisper to me, Hey, like, please don't do a marathon in the fall. <laughs> um, so again, just more ammunition to listen to your body and not totally burn it out. So going into this marathon, since I basically had had a bunch of easy miles under my belt, cause I couldn't do any speed work for a couple months and didn't do a marathon in the fall. Um, I felt great. Like I did not feel overcooked. Um, you know, once kind of like the injury anxiety and the fatigue from just that went away, um, I felt really good. I felt really sharp. Like I, I felt really good going into this marathon from an energy perspective and mentally was just like, okay, I think, I think I'm actually ready to do like something special at this race. Um, so looking at this, we're already 20 minutes in. Oh my gosh. And I haven't even like gotten to Boston yet. Um, this is going to be a long one. So I hope you guys are ready. 
Um, so looking at this, I, you know, started to kind of look ahead at the Boston Marathon and I was like, all right, what do I think I want to do? What's my goal? What do I have to do to set myself up for success um, that I'm not already doing? And I will say a really awesome piece of this is that um, one, I had a Boston Marathon training group and nutrition group going into this race. So I had a couple clients running the Boston Marathon who I was currently working with. I also had several clients from past training and nutrition groups and past one-on-one -on -one clients who were also running the Boston Marathon. So I had a lot more people in my life this year um, who I've worked with running the race that I felt really comfortable like meeting up with them and like, you know, putting some um, energy and attention on them. I was a little nervous to do that last year just because I didn't know the, you know, I had never run the marathon and I didn't want to like totally burn myself out and like stress myself out and therefore stress them out and give them a bad experience. So going into it this year, I was really excited to just like have other clients um, that I was going to meet up with and like train and nutrition and do stuff with up to the race. And to be honest, it really helped me to put my focus on them because there were several points last week before the race that I like forgot I was running the marathon um, because I was so focused on trying to make sure my clients were taken care of and that they were feeling good and that they had a plan. And then I was like, oh, I got to look at my own plan. Yeah. What, what am I doing? <laughs> so um, I will say um, aside from going into this race, feeling more sharp and less overcooked. I also felt extremely calm um, and not really nervous at all. I was excited. I was kind of pleasantly surprised that I was in a place to be excited <laughs> um, after kind of everything that went down throughout training. And um, I think that's really powerful. I think we perform our best, maybe a little bit under pressure, but like, I think we perform our best when we are calm. <laughs> Um, and you know, just excited and in a positive headspace. Um, if there's anything I've learned from watching some of the best, like elite athletes, especially like Elliot Kipchoge is that, you know, those who have like mastered their own minds, like the physical stuff just comes out of them. Um, so I really think that our mindset is our biggest barrier, um, when it comes to, you know, our success and that if we can, kind of figure that out and master that and have tools to use if we kind of feel ourselves spiraling, uh, which I'll talk a lot about for the during part of this race recap. Um, we are going to be in really good shape to succeed. Um, so that's another thing that I felt really good about going into this Boston Marathon. Other things I felt good about. Um, I knew you guys who have followed me, who have listened to these recaps, I knew I was going to be at the end of my period um, in terms of point in my menstrual cycle going into this race. Um, so I was pretty pumped about that. <laughs> um, I did not really race with my period this time. It came like a day early, um, which is fine. And I was pretty much in the clear. Um, I think the curse is broken. I might be done like racing on a period <laughs> after having done that for like two or three years, all my races, um, really done my time there and learned a lot. So I was just excited. I didn't even have to think about that. Um, so that was cool. And then also, um, the weather, we can talk about the weather a little bit. Um, in terms of the weather forecast, again, mastering the mind and having a good mindset going into the race. I think one of the things that athletes waste their energy on the most is obsessing over the weather forecast. Um, and I've done this, I've been there, I get it. 
trust me, I get it. Um, but it's not something we can control. <laughs> so I don't find value in obsessing over it. I think it's good to maybe check it and see what it says. And if there's anything you can do to control your exposure to it, um, that's something that we can do. So when I saw it was going to be, actually, I didn't even check it. I had people telling me what it was going to be. And I was kind of chuckling because it's New England and the weather forecast is not trustworthy even on the day of. Um, So I had people telling me it was going to be in the 80s. I had people telling me it was going to thunderstorm. I had people telling me it was going to be cold and like rainy. I had people telling me it was going to be windy. I had like all all the predictions. (laughs) So I was like, oh my God, this is hilarious. Like, I'll just check it on like Saturday, make sure I don't need to like buy anything. And then just show up and see what happens. So I was pretty thrilled that at least the conditions were good enough where they weren't going to have a super negative impact on performance. I think had it been in the 80s, you know, just coming from New England, not having been exposed to that weather for several months, nor acclimated, that would have been really tough for a lot of people. I tend to do really well in the heat. I like the heat, but that definitely would have still had an impact on my performance, um, especially with the terrain of the Boston course and the time of day that we would have had to race, uh, much like New York City from last year. So I was happy to see that that was what it was going to be leading up to the race so I could like enjoy the weather and have those feel-good endorphins. Um, but that the weather itself on Boston day was going to be very like quintessential April, New England weather, like cold and rainy. I was like, I know how to do that. (laughs) I trained in that for months. Like I got that. Um, so I was pretty pumped. Like, again, everything leading up to this race, I was like, okay, okay. Wow. Yeah. This is coming together. Like good vibes. Um, so looking into other preparations, much like I practice, um, what I preach, <laughs> I carb loaded. Um, so I followed a, about a three day carb load. Um, again, if you want more information on this, listen to the last episode I released on tapered nutrition. I talk more about carb loading, subscribe to my email list. I sent out an email on like exactly what I did last week. Um, so I'm not going to really get into that, but know that I carb loaded. I had about 500 grams of carbohydrate per day for three days, um, leading up to Boston. So Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I was intentional about it. It was kind of hard, but it wasn't bad. I eat enough carbohydrates throughout my day-to-day anyway, so this really didn't feel too hard to me. It just felt like more of what I was eating was coming from carbohydrates and that, honestly, a lot of my base staples were pretty much the same. (laughs) So felt good about that. Felt a little bit fluffy, you know, going into Marathon Monday, which is what I knew exactly where I wanted it to be. And one of the advantages that... um, I have for the Boston Marathon is that it's an hour from my house. (laughs) So um, it's kind of like my local race, which is incredible because it's such an incredible race experience and marathon major. Um, So like I got to eat at my own house. We went into the city on Saturday to get my bib, do the expo, meet up with my clients, see whoever and whatever I wanted to see and then go home. And then we didn't go back until like Sunday after dinner just to basically sleep in a hotel overnight so I could be close to the Boston Commons in the morning. Um, So that was pretty easy for me, like in terms of carb loading, like I didn't have to really plan too much about that other than what I would typically do. So I do recognize if you have like a lot of traveling to do, that can be a little bit trickier. Um, but that's what I help clients with. That's what I have a masterclass about um, that I will link in the show notes in addition to last week's uh, podcast episode. Um, so yeah, I carb loaded. And I also think that exposure therapy 
to carb loading and eating enough carbohydrates over many, many training cycles um, and being consistent with that over time really just helps the process. Like I no longer get stressed out at all about carb loading. Um, my nervous system is usually in a good place, especially because again, I've tried to master my mind and not be too nervous leading up to the race because I found that nerves can really highly impact my appetite and ability to carb load, which then just kind of shoots you in the foot <laughs> because then you're not prepared. So you're more nervous, um, and more likely to have negative thoughts. So I really just didn't feel like it was a big deal this time. And I have not always felt that way. So I wanted to make sure that I said that too. Um, but yeah, check out my other resources on carb loading. If that's something you want to get your feet wet with. So fast forward to race morning. Um, everything had went well, slept great again. Like I just, I've, I've learned a lot about mastering my mind. I'm going to say that a lot <laughs> in this podcast episode. Um, and I still have more to learn. Um, but again, some of the tools that I use and have developed and practiced with consistently over time in training and in races has just helped me so much, um, control my controllables and not be so susceptible to like mental spiraling, <laughs> um, like I have in past races. And I really say that I've probably done that really well, like three times, um, and most of them being in the past like year or so, um, in terms of me saying that, yeah, I really didn't let my nerves get to me, um, much during any of the experience. So like some tools, um, that I'll share here and I could probably do a whole other podcast episode on this, but, um, some of you might know that like, it's really important to me to have hobbies and interests outside of running, um, and nutrition. I, I love running and nutrition, obviously, duh, <laughs> but it is my career. They are my passions. And it's really important for me to have things outside of those because if they're not going well, basically it feels like nothing in my life is going well. And that might sound dramatic, but I'm sure at least some of you listening can relate to that um, or have felt that way in some points of your life. Um, so things that I've kind of made sure to make time for and explore and nurture and learn more about in my life. I've done extra so in the past probably year or so. Um, because one, I've had the resources, you know, I've had the money, I've had the time, I've had the flexibility and the interest to be able to do these things. I don't think that's always possible. And it probably is a season of my life that I'm in that I'm really grateful for that might get minimized in the future, but at least I will have worked on it at some point. So if I'm able to return back to it, um, you know, it's, it's there. And that is like, I've been trying to read a lot more. Um, I read a lot for work. You guys probably have figured that out. <laughs> I read research every day. Um, I read books related to topics that I'm interested in to help my clients every day. Um, I've done that for years. So it's also been important to me to read like fiction and like other things that have nothing to do <laughs> with my career. Um, so I've been trying to do that. My husband's been, um, doing that himself. So like, we're kind of just like the adorable, like we act like we're in our sixties and we just like read <laughs> after work at night on the couch, our friends, we have two friends who live with us. Um, we have an apartment in our house and they will like come downstairs and be like, wow, you guys are like the cutest old couple ever. We're just like 
silently reading on opposite ends of the couch. <laughs> um, so that's something that I just, we both love and we've both just found a lot of peace in. Um, so like I brought my book to my hotel, made sure to read, read my book that I'm currently reading, which is a court of thorns and roses who here has been into that series. Super fun. Um, super random has nothing to do with nutrition or running. But, um, so like I had that and I was like really excited just to like read my book before the marathon and kind of get out of my own head. Um, and also I've been taking singing and piano lessons. Um, piano is something that I played for a really long time when I was a kid. Um, but kind of just lost interest in, as I got more into different sports and academics, um, and singing is something I've always wanted to learn more about and explore. Um, I have a lot of singers in my family. Um, it's something that my husband encouraged me to do. He's the best. Uh, shout out to Connor. <laughs> but um, so kind of finally had the resources and ability and a contact to do that. And it's been so freaking fun. <laughs> so I've been doing that too. So I was like, doing some of that the day before the race too, before we headed down to Boston. And again, like these things might seem trivial and you guys might be like, I don't want to do those things, but I, I can encourage you at minimum to find some hobbies that interest you that have nothing to do with exercise or your career. Um, especially if those things overlap. <laughs> so again, those things just really help with stress relief. I've heard more and more professional athletes talking about that, um, concept as well, because again, if running's not going well, like I was finding I was injured you know, we're just experiencing pain and not really knowing what to do about it. Um, and having those other outlets really made it not as big of a deal to me. And it didn't take me down as much, um, which was so, so key. So I, that's, I just really encourage that. <laughs> so again, fast forward to race morning. Hey, we're more than a half hour in. We finally made it to race morning. Um, and I was wave three, uh, corral one, which is what I was last year. Um, which honestly I was like, oh, but I'm like faster than I was last year. I was kind of hoping I would get seated into wave two just because they start earlier. And I had a lot of friends in wave two. Um, and like, there's an ego there too. Like, I'm not going to deny that, but then I was like, but if I was in wave two, I'd be in the last corral and then it'd be really crowded. And like, that would probably be hard. So honestly, wave one or like corral one, if you ever get to be in corral one of any wave at the Boston marathon, it's freaking awesome because you are at the head of the pack that you're starting with. You get to stand on the start line under the cameras. Like it's less crowded. It's just, it's good vibes. So I was really excited to be in that spot again. So I basically had the exact same like schedule in the morning. So I was like, great. I know what I'm eating. I know what I should eat it. I know what I'm doing. I know when I have to get where I need to be. Um, and I will say a lot of it was just smoother this time around. Um, I definitely had a lot of like a lot more confidence and just felt less antsy about jumping through all the hoops that you have to jump through to get to the start line of the Boston marathon, because you just like, until you do it, you're kind of like, I just want to make sure I'm like where I'm supposed to be and don't miss anything because I don't want to miss like a bus I don't want to be late. You know, there's stuff I have to do in a certain order. So I was just happy to like know the drill basically this time. Um, and it went, a, it went a lot smoother, honestly. I think I think there were a couple buses last year from wave one that had gotten lost. Um, so it kind of backed up the bus situation that takes you from the Boston Commons and Hopkinton or the Boston Commons in Boston to Hopkinton. 
Um, because last year we were like late. I felt a lot more rushed. Um, and this year I didn't feel that way. Like everything was on time, if not early, very smooth. Like I had a little bit more time to get my, you know, my, you know what together. Um, and that was good. So I walked with my family. They're adorable. My parents came with me. My dad like took off Monday. Um, he's a pilot, so he doesn't like have a schedule. Um, and it's basically thrust on him when, his passengers feel like traveling. Um, so I was just like really excited that he was going to be there for like his first big marathon experience, really close with both of my parents. Um, shout out to Anita and Chris. <laughs> um, but they both came with me. My mom had come last year as well and she's great, super supportive. They're both super supportive, even though they don't run. <laughs> um, and they all walked with me and Connor to this, the like buses in, um, the Boston commons. And then I said goodbye. I got choked up just like I did last year. Cause I was like, don't leave me. I have to go do this on my own. This is going to hurt. Um, and then I was smart this year and I went to the bathroom and the porta potties and Boston comments before I got on the school bus, did not do that last year. Walked by all the signs that said, make sure you go to the bathroom before getting on the bus because it's a long bus ride and you'll have to go to the bathroom. And I was like, I don't have to go to the bathroom. I'm fine. And then I literally thought I was going to die. <laughs> like by the end of the bus ride, I've never been in that much pain before. Um, that was like harder than the marathon was last year. So did that this year. Um, that was painless and good. And basically I had on my throwaway clothes, including a pair of throwaway shoes, just in case, um, athletes village was like muddy because that can happen in the rain. There was some rain in the forecast, even though it was like, basically, basically the forecast, even on marathon Monday was like, it might rain. We don't know. <laughs> so, um, I brought rain gear and like, I'd bought a poncho at Dick's sporting goods the day before, just in case I needed it. Um, and I was really glad that I did. Um, and I had brought like an extra pair of socks with me, I Vaseline and body glided the, you know what, out of my feet, um, which that's worked really well for me in the past with rainier conditions. Um, and yeah, got on, got on a school bus early, right on time. I saw one of my, um, friends on the school bus, which was funny that we had like managed to get on the same bus. Um, shout out to Cinti. Um, she's in her sixties. She works with my aunt, um, at UNH, although I think she's retired. They're both retired now, but she's in her sixties. I think this is like, I don't know. She's run many, many, many Boston's. She requalifies every year. Like she runs a ton of races every year. Um, so she's just like a local legend. And I was really pumped, um, that I got to see her on the bus. Cause I always wanted to be at Boston with her. And then I was like on the bus with her going to the start, which was cool. Um, and then I sat down on the bus. She was sitting with someone else. And then I sat down on the bus and this other girl, um, I say girl, she's probably my age, um, sat next to me and we just started chatting and she was from, uh, Canada. Um, her name was Camille and she was going to have her first Boston. So that was just, I was excited for her. I heard a lot of people who were going to do their first Boston. And I was just like all the nostalgia from last year. I was like, I just want them to have, like what the experience that I had, because it was the freaking best. <laughs> um, so she had some questions about like logistics in the course and stuff. And I answered them and just tried to pump her up and calm her down at the same time. But she was great. Love talking to her. Um, we were both like eating carbs on the bus. I had a honey stinger waffle and an applesauce pouch. 
on the bus and a couple sips of water. And in hindsight, I, I think last year I had a picky bar and an applesauce pouch. Um, and I didn't have any GI distress this year, but I, I actually think I could have stood to have a little bit more food on the bus. Um, I think too, because it was just, everything was a little bit earlier than it was last year. Um, I'd had a bagel in my hotel room with cream cheese and some Powerade. And then, yeah, I don't know. I think I could have had a little bit more on the bus. It was honestly the same amount of carbohydrates that I had the year before, but it just was like less volume. Um, and normally that's kind of like what you want, but in hindsight, I was like, Meh, I probably could have had like two honey stinger waffles and an applesauce pouch. Um, so noted for next year, but wasn't a huge deal. It's not like I was really hungry or anything like that. Um, but yeah, we rode the bus to Hopkinton. Um, we <laughs> passed a school bus pulled over on the highway with a flat tire. So if you're listening to this and you were on that bus, like I, my heart goes out to you. I hope you got to the start line. Okay. I was like, Oh my God, I really hope we get to the start line. Okay. Like that can still happen. That's like such a freak thing, especially in the rain. Ugh. Um, so we got to athletes village. We, got dropped off at a different place, um, like behind the village than I did last year, but had a bit of a walk up to all the porta potties and the tents and stuff. And again, got in the porta potty line, like did, did my thing. That was fine. And I got to see Teresa DiLorenzo, who was another dietitian and yoga instructor on this podcast a couple of years ago now. So it was just really fun to meet her in person in the porta potty line. I also spotted her eating a bagel in the porta potty line and made a joke about like, LOL, how to spot dietitian marathoners in the wild. So Teresa, if you're listening, thanks for coming on the show. Um, and also, it was really great to meet you in person. I had to take my picture in front of the All Starts Here sign in Hopkinton. Um, which was cool. And it still wasn't raining at this point. I had put like my poncho on and I was still walking around with my throwaway shoes. Um, it was a little bit chilly. Um, and I was just trying to stay warm and not like shiver too much. So I ended up, um, actually, I, I actually ended up seeing another friend who I had met, um, at rise run retreat who, which Sarah Canny runs. Um, I had spoke at that event last fall and I saw her and we both like, were like, Oh my God. And we hugged. And then she had to run off to the start, but it was really good to see her. That just like made me feel like settled, <laughs> which was good. And then I saw my friend Cindy again and then ducked under a tent just to kind of stay dry because it started to rain at this point, like pretty significantly. Um, and I didn't want to get more wet than I had to before basically going to walk to the start. So I was in wave three corral one. I think I went to the porta potty one more time. And then, um, they did call me to the start and I changed my shoes under the tent and like put some body glide in more places and then donated the body glide. Um, and then I started walking to the start line. Um, again, it was raining. It was pretty wet. I was thinking like, should I have changed my shoes? <laughs> like, should I have waited until I got closer to my corral? But oh, well, here we are. I'm going to get wet. It's fine. Still had my poncho and my throwaway gear on um, and had put all my gels in places. I did take two generation you can edge gels um, in pineapple in Athletes Village just to get some more slow and steady carbs in, which went down fine. Um, and again, a couple more sips of water. And then I walked to the start line. Um, and if you haven't done Boston before, you basically have like I think I walked 5,000 steps before I even started the race. Like 
you, I had to walk to the T in the morning from my hotel in Back Bay. And then I had to walk to Boston Commons to get on the buses. And then I had to walk to Athletes Village where they dropped us off. And then I had to walk around Athletes Village. And then I had to walk to the start line. Um, so by the time you get to the start line, like you probably walked like two miles minimum, um, even if you're trying to be super careful. And it's fine. It's no big deal. But just prepare for that. So you again, you're you've mastered your mind and you're not like internally freaking out and questioning if you've walked too much. <laughs> um, so did that. And then um, porta potties one more time. If you haven't run the marathon, there are more porta potties by a CVS at the end of the corrals. Once you walk about three quarters of a mile to the start area. Um, so I did that. And then I took off all of my um, throwaway clothes, kept the poncho on until the last minute. Um, I was walking actually with my friend who I had met on the bus, Camille. Um, we were in, I think she, she was in corral too, but we were basically in the same corral. Um, and it's kind of confusing and a bit of a cluster once you get to the corral. So I was just like, Hey, we have to walk like all the way up that hill. Um, it's a little far, but we'll make it on time. It's fine. Um, like if anything, we want to cut it close. So we're not out here longer than we need to be. Um, threw away my poncho, made sure I had all my gels on me and my handheld, um, which was full of scratch and then waited in my corral to start the race. But let's take a minute to hear a word from our sponsor for this episode, which was indeed scratch labs. Thank you, Scratch Labs, for sponsoring this episode of the Hollyfield Nutrition Podcast. And what a perfect sponsor they were because this is now my, what is it? One, two, three, four, sixth PR, I think, using Scratch Labs. Um, you better use Scratch Labs on the Boston Marathon course. So um, I kind of wanted to go over my fuel plan a little bit in this episode. And I'm going to do part of it in this advertisement for <laughs> Scratch Labs. Um, because you guys know, I don't gush and talk about a company or work with them unless I one use them myself and two think that they are great and have the ability to help a lot of people who could be listening. Um, and they are truly a great company to work with. They make a very high quality, amazing product. Um, and it's really easy for me to recommend it because I love it myself and I love it also as a sports dietitian. So what did I do for the Boston Marathon? I put two single serve packets of Scratch Labs hydration mix in strawberry lemonade into a 22 ounce handheld Nathan bottle. I will link all of that below in the show notes. Um, and I did the single serve packs just in case it did rain. I thought it would make it easier to travel with. Um, and it was, and I put the water in it and pre-mixed it in my hotel room. So they, the Boston marathon does allow you to bring, um, liquids into athletes village, unlike the Chicago marathon. So I did that. And my plan was to basically use that until I ran out, which I assumed would be around like miles 10 through 12 ish. Um, and then use the aid stations for the rest of the course. Um, I did toy with bringing extra scratch labs packets and refilling my handheld bottle, but I kind of figured it would be nice to, um, I, I like using the aid stations on course because it helps you get into a good rhythm. Um, and I like the aid stations later on the course, especially because they're not as crowded. <laughs> so that was my plan. That's exactly what I did last year. Um, and it worked really well last year. So I was like, might as well do it again. Um, and why do I love Scratch Labs hydration mix? Well, 
It's got 380 milligrams of sodium in it. It's got 20 grams of carbohydrate per serving. Um, and it's really easy on the stomach. It's easy to tolerate. It doesn't have an overbearing flavor. They have a lot of flavor options. They have caffeinated and non-caffeinated options. And runners need carbohydrates. It's that simple. You're going to hear me talk a lot about carbohydrates in this episode. Um, but it's a great product. I train with it. I love it. That's why I wanted it with me on race day. So if you want to try out Scratch Labs hydration products, they also have bars, chews. Um, they have a super fuel high carb mix that I used in part of my carb load as well. Um, and so many other products in addition to the hydration mix. So if you want to try that out, um, make sure you use my discount code so you can get a discount. So use code Holly 20. That's H O L L E Y 20 at checkout. Um, and you can use the link in the show notes, but thank you scratch lab so much for another PR, a lot of training miles together and for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. So again, to backtrack a little bit about how I prepared for this race, um, I did carb load. Like I said, I also did um, sodium load. I made sure I stayed really well hydrated because we know that carbohydrates stored as glycogen is stored with water, which is basically what yields you to feeling a bit puffy, a bit um, like extra fluffy, less toned. Um, and like you're retaining water cause you are, <laughs> um, when you carb load. So I made sure to stay well hydrated, um, so that that could do its thing. And I also incorporated about 2000 milligrams extra of sodium, um, the day before my race. So on Sunday, um, I used some scratch labs products to do that. I also had some salty food. Um, and I did use, um, like some Powerade as well. Cause I just, I like having fun carby liquids to carb load with because they just like don't take up a lot of volume and they multitask <laughs> by hydrating me too. So I did sodium load for these conditions and I'll tell you more about why as I get into the recap. So back to fast forward, standing on the start line in Corral one. Um, so up to this point, it had been kind of like brisk and damp, and it had been raining and damp. Um, once I got to the start line and I like took all my layers off, um, it almost felt like humid, which I know damp and humid are basically the same thing, but it felt like a little bit warm. Um, so I was kind of like, I wonder how this will go. <laughs> because as you know, humid conditions are harder to run in because our sweat does not evaporate and that's what cools us off keeps our core body temp down, keeps our heart from having to work as hard to cool us off. So I was kind of wondering how that would go. And I was happy that I had a handheld water bottle on me and plenty of electrolytes in my system in order to do that. My original plan and what I had packed, um, and again, I'll link my outfit and everything in the show notes, but I had put three gels um, in each of my shorts pockets. And I had actually planned to pick up one or two more on course. I knew that they were going to be handing out Morton gels. Um, I knew I tolerated those fine and I knew that I was confident I would be able to get them. Um, and I figured I would probably need maybe like one or two, like maybe one or two extra. Um, and the rest of what I had on hand were Huma plus gels. I alternated between caffeinated and non-caffeinated. I detailed this a ton in the email that I had sent out last week. Um, so I had three, three gels in each pocket, planned to pick a couple more up on the course and planned to, um, take them about every three miles or so. This is what I did last year. I remember last year starting to take them more frequently during like the end of the course, especially during like the Newton Hills 
from miles like 16 to 21. Um, and I was like, that worked pretty well. It was a little like unexpected. I kind of like adjusted to that plan using my own <laughs> intuition um, and just kind of went with it. And I had trained with Morton before, so I wasn't worried about just like having to take that on course. So that was kind of my plan. I was like, I'll take these like every three or four miles, you know, um, I'll get an extra gel on the course and that should be good to go. Um, we'll learn as we go that <laughs> that's not quite what happened. Um, and that's fine. I learned a lot about it. So, you know, we are in the corral, um, and we started the race. So, we started the race. The Boston Marathon goes like straight down a hill. You lose over a hundred feet in the first mile. Um, it was pretty like crowded. I just I know I gushed about Corral one not being super crowded, but like I was just it was like the ground was wet. It had stopped raining at this point, which was great, but it felt like I said a little bit more humid and warm. Um, so I was just really trying to like watch my footing, not like step in any puddles immediately and get my feet totally soaking wet. Um, and just get into a rhythm. Um, I kind of figured that going with the crowd would prevent me from going out too fast, especially if I avoided like bobbing and weaving around people, which I tried my best to do. Um, I saw a couple of people that I follow on Instagram. A couple of you told me that you follow me on Instagram in the first mile or two, which was really like, I loved that. That just raises my spirit so much. Um, and I love meeting people in person. So thank you for introducing yourselves. I love that. Um, and by the time we got to mile like three, um, which we, we did pass like the spot where Spencer, the golden retriever used to sit with his flags. And I was like, mm, Spencer, um, really grateful. I got to see him last year as his, his last year on course. Um, if you guys don't know the Spencer story, just Google Spencer Boston marathon dog and all his history will come up, but he did pass away this year. Um, so by the time I got to mile like three, um, on the course, it started to space out a little bit and I didn't feel like I had to like, you know, look at the ground and make sure I wasn't going to trip over anyone or trip up anyone. Um, and if you also know the Boston marathon course, you go straight down a hill for the first mile that goes by super quick. And then you do go like up a hill <laughs> pretty quickly after, and that kind of helps break the group up a little bit. Um, but you kind of get introduced to what the terrain's going to be like really quickly on course. And the first three miles honestly go by super fast because you're just like moving in a sea of people. It's like a conveyor belt. Like you can't really slow down and you can't really speed up. So the miles just kind of tick by. Um, so by the time I got to mile three, it was starting to space out a little bit. And I do remember thinking one, I feel like my sweat's not evaporating and I'm like not hot, but I feel like I could be getting hot as this goes on, if this is what the weather's going to be like. Um, so I started doing what I did last year when I realized that I was a little bit warm and I started dumping water on my head from the aid stations. Um, so I actually did start doing that again around like the mile three or four aid station. Um, I also started to realize I'm running my goal pace. Like I'm executing my plan so far. I'm not going out too fast, not being greedy. I'm not pushing it, but I was like, this does feel a little bit like it's not effortless today. This does feel a little bit harder than it has in part some of my training runs. Like some of my training runs that gave me a ton of confidence for this race. Like I felt like I could run 720 pace, 730 pace effortlessly all day long. Um, especially with the newfound ease of doing that with not having a bum hamstring. <laughs> um, 
so I remember feeling like, like, oh, I'm already starting to feel like this is not effortless. So, you know, I kind of was like, okay, well, you kind of felt this way last year. Like, I do remember feeling this way last year. Miles like two, three, four, five on the Boston Marathon course aren't super um, spectator friendly. Like there's just not a ton of spectators until you start getting into like the town of um, like Framingham and Natick. And like, there's a couple people in Ashland. Um, so I was like, well, that's okay. Like, don't read too much into that. Follow your plan. Like, it's fine. Just like stay, stay within the effort. Don't push it. Um, and I remember thinking like, I hope I'm not going out too fast. I <laughs> thought the exact same thing last year. I was, I'm always so nervous on this course of going out too fast because it is very easy to do. <laughs> um, and it will bite you in the butt if you do it and you won't even realize that you did it until it's too late. So I also remember thinking like, just relax don't do anything crazy. Like stay within yourself. It's one of my favorite mantras. Don't be greedy. Like it, it's okay. Like I kept, I kept glancing down at my watch and being like, okay, seven thirties, seven forties. Like I had, had a little bit of seven twenties down like some of the Hills. And I was like, okay, like that's, I think that's fine. (laughs) Um, started dumping water on my head, started making sure I was drinking my scratch labs out of my handheld a couple times every mile. Um, just to make sure I was staying on top of hydration because I figured if it was going to get more humid and warm or if like the Boston weather turned completely and the sun came out that it could go south (laughs) really quickly, um, if I was dehydrated. So I tried to stay on top of that, um, as best I could saw some interesting things on the course. I remember seeing a couple children who were like eight or nine years old handing out uh, fireball nips, which I know some people don't know what a nip is, um, even though I don't know where you're from or if that's just a thing that we call them in New Jersey and New Hampshire where I grew up, but basically just like a little single serve like shot um, in a bottle, little bottle of like alcohol. Um, So there were children handing out fireball nips and they were literally going, get your fireball nips here, like fireball shots. So it's hard to miss them. And White Claws. They were also handing out White Claw, like alcoholic seltzers, um, like clearly under a tent at someone's house, um, like probably their home residence on the side of the road. And I remember looking around at the runners around me because we were still all really close together at this point. It was towards the beginning of the course and no one was laughing. Everyone was like, what? Like, did you just see that? Like, that was weird. Where are their parents? Like, (laughs) like, what's going on there? And like, didn't really think anything of it other than like, eh, marathon spectators are crazy, but like glad to have them here. Hope they don't do anything dumb. Um, so I'll kind of revisit that later. (laughs) Um, so we kept going and I was trying to stay on my, um, fueling plan. I, I definitely felt, I took my first gel right before mile three because I started to feel like, like, remember when I said before, maybe I could have had a little bit more on the bus. Um, I started to be like, well, maybe you feel bad because, or not bad. I didn't feel bad, but I was like, maybe you don't feel super sharp because like you do need a little bit more carbohydrate. So like try taking your gel early. Um, so I did start doing that and it helped a little bit, but not much. Um, I didn't notice like a huge difference. So I was like, okay, like just stay on your plan. No big deal. Um, so I started that on, on task on, on plan kept dumping water on my head, kept sipping my scratch, wasn't really using the aid stations yet, um, other than as a cue to drink from my bottle, um, and taking the cup of water to dump on my head if it was accessible. Um, I laughed at a guy, um, a volunteer handing out water, um, 
because it's Poland Spring Water, apparently, who sponsors the aid stations at Boston. He was like, best water in New England, because um, they're from Maine, and it's Boston Marathon course. That just made me laugh. I was like, best water in New England. Like, what a motto. Um, anyway, so chuckled at that, <laughs> um, and basically just kept chucking along. Like, I, I honestly think now that I've done this course twice, um, I do think the first couple of miles are boss of Boston are... I think it's great. I think there's a lot of excitement over starting the Boston Marathon. You're finally like, I jumped through all the hoops to get to the start line and now I'm here and it's happening. Um, I will say some of the novelty of that did wear off a little bit for me for this time around. I was more just like, all right, let's, let's do this thing. Let's get started. Like, I'm just like, I want to get started. I want to get to the good parts of the course. Um, and I wasn't nervous, but I was less like starry eyed over the whole thing um, just because, you know, it wasn't my first time. And I do think that since there aren't as many spectators until like really until like it doesn't start picking up really consistently until probably like mile 12. Um, I'd say there's more quiet parts in the first half than there are in the second half. Um, I think that's part of it for me. I think part, I think that's part of why I haven't always felt amazing in the first part of this course. And because some of the novelty of the start had worn off for me, I think that's probably why it was a little bit more exaggerated this time in addition to maybe being a little bit humid. Um, so just kind of, again, reflecting on that, nothing wrong with it, but kind of something I noticed. Um, so once I kind of got through like Framingham, um, and I was taking my like second gel and again, still feeling like, okay, knowing that I was still like very much on pace. Like my effort was feeling a little bit harder than what the pace reflected, but not much. I was like, okay, like this might not be a stellar day for me, but again, I felt this way last time at this point. So just keep moving forward, <laughs> um, and try to take in the crowds. I did notice that every time we would pass through like a town that had a ton of spectators like Framingham or Natick, I would be like, oh, I feel lighter and I was distracted and that went by really fast. <laughs> so I was like, okay, like it'll probably get better as we get further into the course where there's more spectators. Um, funny thing in Natick, when you pass like, you pass like a lake, there was like a guy in a pedal boat in the lake, just like fishing, which is, he was smoking a cigar. I was like, that's hilarious. Every, all the runners were like, Hey, are there any good fish today? Like we're probably scaring all of them away. Um, so that was just like, I don't know. He had like a big mustache. Like it was just a, it was a great, great quintessential picture of what I would expect from a new England fisherman. Um, and he didn't talk to us, <laughs> but, um, right around there, it's again, a part of the course where there's not really any spectators because there isn't a shoulder and you're by water, but there was a spectator <laughs> by himself. It's like a white guy, like running towards us, um, like the opposite direction of the course. Like, again, there's no like place for spectators to really be. So he was just like running on the course backwards. And I was like, dude, like, no, don't do that. And again, not a huge deal, but uh, again, something we'll circle back to later that I was like, that's weird. And everyone was like, that's weird. Who's, who was around me? Um, so kind of just ticked by the miles at this point, I really stopped looking at my watch. Um, I just was like, you know, I'm running within myself. I can't really do it anything differently. <laughs> so let me just try and relax, not push it too much. Um, you know, kind of cruise, use the downhills to my advantage and not 
push too much or be a hero on any of these early uphills, um, which is a strategy mindset that worked really well for me last year. Um, and I stopped looking at my watch cause I was like, if it tells me I'm slowing down, that's going to get in my head, even though I know I could feel better later. Cause that's how marathons work. Sometimes you feel bad, but then you feel better later in the course. Cause they're so freaking long. Um, or I was like, it's going to tell me I'm going faster than I think I should be going. And that's going to freak me out. <laughs> so I was like, let me just stop looking at my watch. Um, so I did. Um, and then basically going into mile 12, um, this is like one of my favorite parts of the course because you start to enter the absolute chaos of the course. <laughs> um, from mile 12, it's pretty quiet when you're entering Wellesley. Um, there's a Morton station. So I picked up a caffeinated Morton gel and I took that. Um, and at this point too, I was about done with my handheld. Um, so I was like, after the Wellesley scream tunnel, like I'll throw away my handheld and then I'll start using the aid stations. Um, but when you do get to mile 12 of the Boston course, you can freaking hear Wellesley, like the scream tunnel. It's still like a mile away. Um, but you can hear them and it's, it's not like louder than like the Chicago marathon course. For example, I think that course has more spectators. I think it's way louder than Boston in general, but it sounds so loud because going into the town is so quiet. Cause there's not really anyone there. <laughs> They're all in the scream tunnel. Um, so that, and you like kind of go downhill to get into it. So it just is like, it just lifts you off your feet. Um, so I noticed that that helped me a ton. Um, I was like cruising through the scream tunnel, like reading all the signs. Like it was just great. I love the Wellesley scream tunnel. They really show up. Um, you know, a lot of them were just like drinking and like having a good time and all that good stuff. Um, like hanging way over the guardrails, um, high-fiving people, kissing people, you know, whole, whole thing. Um, felt really good coming off of that. And then I was like, okay, like we're in the Boston course. There's going to be more people now. This is exciting. We're getting closer to Newton. And I kind of made up my goal just to get to the Newton Hills. Um, I really like the Newton Hills, probably like one of the only people that thinks that. Um, because to me, that's what you have to get through for the race to start um, before you can start making judgments, making calls, um, if you've run the race smart. So I was just excited to get to the Newton Hills, execute those, and then see how I felt. Because I was like, I'm either going to feel good and I'm going to be able to finish strong like I did last year. I was like, or I'm going to feel terrible. And at least I'm closer to the finish. <laughs> um, at this point, my hamstrings had basically taken turns like cramping a little bit. Like they weren't feeling how they felt when I was like injured, quote unquote, but they were feeling a little crampy. So that's where I was also like, I think me dumping water on my head and being liberal with my hydration has been a good thing because I think I need it. I think it is humid and I'm glad I've been doing this. Um, and again, they were taking turns being a little crampy. So I knew it wasn't like an overuse injury coming up or anything like that. So again, something I took note of something I was like, well, maybe if the hills come and I like my, my pace is changed and my gait's changing a little bit, that'll kind of help just take out any of the repetition. Um, so that was just, again, something that I was like, huh, hopefully that doesn't blow up in my face. <laughs> um, I also noticed like a blister at this point, And I was like, if I can feel that now, that's probably going to be pretty bad by the end of the race, but oh, well. Um, and actually it wasn't too bad, but just little things that like you can do body checks when you come out of Wellesley. Cause it's, 
you feel really good and there's less people. So it's quiet. <laughs> so you can kind of be like, okay, how am I doing? Do I need to slow my roll? You know, which I did. I, I had gone really fast to the Wellesley. I think I dropped like a seven fifteen mile and I was like, that's, that was fast. Um, but there was a pretty big downhill after that. Um, so again, just kind of checking in, seeing how things were going. I had tossed my handheld and was like, okay, mental note, you need to use the aid stations now. <laughs> so, um, I kind of burned through that, got into new in, um, and felt, I felt pretty good. I felt like, okay, I know more about this part of the course now than I did before. I know that there's four big Hills. The first one's an overpass. A lot of people don't count that one for some reason, but that to me is the worst Hill of them all. So you should count it. <laughs> um, and I just started going up the Hill and I was like, okay, we don't need to be a hero. We're just going to maintain the same effort, just like I've always practiced in training, just like I always tell my clients, um, we're going to keep taking gels. We're going to see how it goes. We're going to hope our body feels okay. My left hip had also started to feel a little tight in my low back. And I think that's what was causing some of like the crappiness in my left hamstring, which got better as I went through the race. Now recording this, that's the only part of me that feels like it's a little cranky, but I think that's actually pretty standard for how I feel after a marathon. So it must just be something with my gait that I'm sure I'll get to work on in physical therapy. <laughs> so, um, new inhales. So this part of the course, just like last year, <laughs> I had started to notice, I think I need more carbohydrates. <laughs> um, I was taking gels every three miles. And then by the time I got to like mile 15, right before the first big hill at mile 16 in Newton, I was like, you know what? We're cruising. You get a huge, you get the biggest downhill drop um, of the whole course going into the Newton Hills, which is like such a freaking slap in the face. Cause you're just like cruising out of Wellesley. You're feeling great about everything. You're cruising down a hill. You're like, this is awesome. And then you're met by like the biggest hills on, on the course. <laughs> it's like a slap in the face. So, um, I was cruising down the hill and I was like, you know what? I'll just take my gel early because I'm I'm going downhill. This is easier from a logistical standpoint. And then I won't have to worry about fumbling with a gel on the hill, um, which I think I did last year. <laughs> so I did that. Um, the caffeinated Morton gel that I took, I aspirated on a little bit. So if you've ever done that before, caffeine is really bitter. Um, so that was kind of weird. I was like, <laughs> I was getting like a burning sensation through my nose um, and I was just trying to like breathe through it so that I didn't like make any of it go down further. Um, marathoning so fun, <laughs> but anyway, so I was just trying to be careful <laughs> taking my gels, um, which is why I was like, let me just take it on the downhill. Like no big deal. Um, so I did. And then, so that was probably like two miles after I had taken the last gel, um, for reference. And I got up the first hill pretty good, felt good. Um, and that, again, I think that hill's the worst hill. And then I went down the hill, um, got to the second hill. And I was like, again, maybe two miles from my last gel. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to take another gel again. <laughs> um, and again, through the aid stations at this point, I was basically taking a cup of Gatorade at every single aid station because I wanted to stay on top of electrolytes because I had run out at this point of electrolyte rich gels, Morton gels don't have electrolytes in them. Um, I had taken Huma plus gels leading up to this, the first six that I took. Um, so I was like, I just want to make sure it's still pretty early. I want to make sure I stay on top of 
electrolytes. Um, also, when we entered Newton, um, it started downpouring, <laughs> which was, again, just a slap in the face. But I didn't mind that, too, because I knew that would help me. Um, I knew that would help me basically be able to cool down. And it definitely did. But then I started to get a little cold. <laughs> um, so I definitely stopped dumping water in my head at this point because obviously I was getting rained on. But I do think the rain actually cooled things off a little bit um, because I started to kind of notice like my body felt cold. My hands were getting numb. Um, and I was just kind of like, okay, important to keep moving. Um, that's the hardest part about racing is if you're moving at like a faster pace, you stay warm. But if you have to slow down for whatever reason on the course, then you start to get cold. Um, so I was just thinking, okay, really important to keep moving. Gonna get cold. It was raining hard, but I didn't mind it. Um, I know some people were really like up in arms about the weather. Um, but I don't know. I didn't think it was bad. There was like no wind, which was amazing. Um, and I thought it was pretty great marathoning weather personally. Um, so getting through the Newton Hills, I really just wanted to get through them. Wasn't looking at my watch and kind of glance at it occasionally on the downhill sections of the Newton Hills, just to see like how I was recovering. And whenever I glanced down, I was kind of like, oh, I'm still doing pretty good. <laughs> um, I hadn't really looked at any of my mile splits for several miles. So I didn't really know like if I was on pace to PR, like I kind of thought maybe I was, but I didn't really know by how much. Um, and again, it didn't really matter because I was doing everything I could do. So didn't really put too much weight behind that. Um, and then um, I got to Heartbreak. So I got to Heartbreak Hill last year. If you remember my podcast recap, I remember I didn't even know I was on Heartbreak Hill when I was on Heartbreak Hill. Um, this year, I definitely knew I was on Heartbreak Hill. I was like, okay, this is it. I was like, but mentally, like there could be one more hill after this. So don't get too excited just in case I'm like wrong about where it is for some reason. But gauging the amount of spectators and like the rowdiness um, and just remembering what it looks like, I was like, I'm pretty sure this is Heartbreak Hill. Um, I knew at this point I was also going to start to see people I knew who were spectating, um, on course. So I was really looking forward to that. I just kept saying like, just get to the Newton Hills because then you'll be distracted and you'll be focusing on the Newton Hills and you know, there'll be a lot of crowd support and then you're going to get to see your friends and your family. Um, and then it's all downhill from there. So got to heartbreak Hill, um, got about halfway up Heartbreak Hill. And one of my former coworkers and my friend Tiffany and her husband were there cheering. And she was like, I will make sure that you know, it's me and that you hear us. And she sure did. <laughs> um, I was cracking up. They helped a ton um, cheer me on. So thank you guys so much for standing in the rain and being there. Um, and then I got <laughs> almost to the top of Heartbreak Hill. And again, this is like one of the hardest parts of the course. So there's typically a lot of spectators. There's a lot going on. It's awesome. Like the energy is so hype and it's exactly what you want at that part of the course. Like I want music blasting. I want confetti. I want people screaming my name. Like it just, I don't know. It helps me a ton. Um, and I remember seeing like a bunch of bright yellow neon, like security jackets, um, which I knew all the cops and security were wearing um, on the side of the course. And I remember thinking, cause again, I passed it in a split second, but I remember thinking that's weird. Like that's a lot of policemen. I hope everything's okay. Like, I hope someone didn't like die. Um, like I hope nothing's on fire. Like again, I, you know, it was a split second thought, but I do remember thinking 
that's a lot, like that's an alarming amount of policemen. Um, and then I learned more about what was happening there later. Um, the pioneers run club, um, which is primarily a group of people of color were out cheering, um, for runners that they knew runners that they didn't know. Um, Matt Chittum covered, um, this with, um, Jean-Marc Remy, who was one of the people who recorded what was happening, um, at that section of the course, he was out there cheering with the pioneers run club. Um, and they did a really good job covering his recount of that on Matt's podcast. Um, and I really encourage you guys to go listen to it because I know, uh, Jean-Marc Remy posted, um, a video that went viral, um, about the policing situation at the cheer section on, um, social media. And then Allison Mariella Desir, um, who I follow, had shared it. Um, so that's how I saw it and kind of made full circle on what the situation was. Um, so again, I encourage you to go listen to him tell the story because he was there instead of me <laughs> tell the story. But the key takeaways that I got from my experience at Boston were that what happened to them shouldn't have happened to them. And other people cheering on the course who were primarily white did not have the same thing happen to them, even though they were both basically doing the same things on the course. Um, like I mentioned, children handing out alcohol, like people running backwards on the course, people high-fiving people on the course, people bandit running with their runners on the course. Um, so anyway, take what you want with that kind of disappointed in that situation. And I don't want to beat up like <laughs> the policing situation at the Boston Marathon, because I understand fully that security at the Boston Marathon is not for the faint of heart. It is a big, big job to put on security for an event like that, especially with the history that's there. Um, and I really appreciate what they do to keep us safe. Um, and again, I really encourage you to go listen to the ep podcast episode that Matt Chittum from Rambling Runner did um, with John Mark Remy, because it's just, it's a good conversation. Um, so thought that was weird, but got up and over Heartbreak Hill, passed under the, um, like you've conquered Heartbreak Hill or you've summited, I think Heartbreak Hill is <laughs> what it says. Um, and then after Heartbreak Hill, it's like a screaming downhill um, as you kind of get into Brookline. Um, I knew that one of my friends um, was going to be at one of the water stations around that time. And I saw her. I pointed at her. It was a whole thing. We were so excited to see each other. Um, and that just felt really good. So <laughs> between like all of the hype and like the energy at Heartbreak Hill, um, I actually felt pretty optimistic going into the last 10k of this race. I was like, I freaking made it through heartbreak hill. Like I still have my legs under me. Like my hamstrings are a little cranky, but like nothing's really screaming at me. Um, in a point where I need to like adjust my expectations or anything like that. Again, still wasn't really looking at my watch at this point. At this point though, I knew that I was kind of flying down the hills. <laughs> um, like I knew that I was getting into a flow state, which feels so good at this point in a marathon um, and didn't really have to think about the pace. It was just kind of happening, even though it felt really hard. Um, I always want to reiterate, like, you don't have to feel bad during marathons. <laughs> you can finish marathons, even the Boston Marathon, feeling 
very good and very strong, even though it's still hard. Some people have asked me, Hey, you've like run so many marathons. This was my eighth marathon. And you say that you felt really good at the end of a lot of them. Like, don't you think you maybe left something out on the course? Um, if you don't feel bad at the end of a marathon and to that, I always say, I never have gone out in a marathon feeling like I'm hobby jogging it (laughs) to then like drop the hammer at the finish. Like I always feel like I am very tactful in how I approach a race pace plan. Um, Like I said, throughout this whole, on paper, you could look at this marathon, you could look at my splits and say, oh yeah, she was clearly jogging the first part and then must have felt good, so decided to finish strong. No, (laughs) like I didn't feel great during the first half of the marathon. Some of it was physical. A lot of it, I think, was just mental. Um, And then it came together because of nutrition and because of my mindset and because of my training in the back half of that race. Um, And that's what I'll say about that is it's not that it's not going to feel hard. (laughs) Um, It's the end of a freaking marathon. It's always going to feel hard. Um, And it did feel very hard. But there's a difference between it feeling really hard and really bad, if that makes sense. And there's a difference between it feeling hard, but you're still able to execute your plan or get the pace that you want and feel pretty okay doing it. And like it's possible compared to feeling like the wheels are coming off and hitting a wall and having to like crawl your way in, Um, which we've all been there. Like that sucks. That happens. (laughs) Like it's going to happen to me again in the future, I'm sure. But what I'm trying to say is a lot of the ways that I've run and finished marathons was not an accident. It wasn't a fluke. (laughs) Like there's a lot of thoughtfulness, preparation and training and nutrition and all those things that goes into this. That's allowed me to be very consistent in how I race marathons. Um, so honestly, one of my mantras in the last 10 K of this race, as I was passing, multiple people. I didn't really, I only got passed by a couple people who were racing past me. I was passing a ton of people. Um, in the last 10 K of this race was you are good at this. (laughs) That was one of my mantras. Um, it just kind of helped me feel confident in what I was doing and not feel nervous that I was pushing it too much and going to blow up, um, which I think we've all probably had that like anxious feeling before. And then I also actually started to look forward to thinking of the idea of Allie Feller from Allie on the Run announcing my finish at the finish line. I knew she would be announcing people at the finish line. I couldn't remember if she was like on shift still around the time that I was supposed to come in or if she, you know, was going to have like her break um, or something like that. But that honestly was a thought that helped me as well in the last like half of this marathon was you're going to get to Newton and then you're going to get to see your family and friends on the course. And then Allie Feller is going to announce your finish. So like, just keep freaking going. Um, cause if you go faster, it'll be over sooner. <laughs> so, um, I was kind of thinking of that as well, like how cool that would be. Um, just for some background, Allie and I still, we both live in New Hampshire. Um, we've never met in person. Um, I have, had calls with her in the past. She's helped me with my own podcast, with this podcast. Um, and we, you know, are in the DMS and stuff on Instagram, but we've, we've never met in person. So I was kind of like, Oh, like we'll get to meet in person, but not really like at the finish line. And I've heard her voice in my ears for, I mean, thousands of miles that I've run, um, including multiple, you know, hundreds of miles in this training cycle. So it'd be kind of cool to hear her voice when I finish, um, the race super poetic, right? Um, so starting to think of that too. And again, 
I was still taking my gels every two miles. <laughs> so I had taken some more Morton gels at um, one of the other Morton stops towards the end of the race. I think there was like a stop at 18 and 21. I took one at each stop. Um, <laughs> so I was still taking Morton gels. I honestly, when I finished the race, I thought maybe I had one or two in my pocket still, but I didn't. And I was like, I think I took all of them. Um, like I didn't drop them. So more on that later. <laughs> but um, so that's kind of how the last 10K went. It's honestly um, pretty much downhill to the finish. Um, I know people will say, but there's hills still. And there are, but if you're feeling good, you don't really feel the hills. Um, they're kind of small bumps and it's kind of like not a bad change in terrain. Um, and what I've noticed on the Boston course is that what goes up on the Boston course goes down, but it goes down more than it goes up. So you always have like ample time to recover. Um, but that's also why I definitely think strength training is and downhill training are so necessary to having a good Boston marathon experience. Like a lot of people get focused on training for the uphills and trying to like fitness their way through the course. And the course is more about strength. Um, if you pace it correctly, your fitness will be fine, but your legs are what will go first <laughs> on that course. Um, I talked to so many runners I've heard, I've watched so many other recaps and read so many recaps of the race and people who like felt like the wheels came off or just didn't have the race they wanted to have. Most of them said uh, cardiovascularly, like I felt great, but like my legs just weren't they weren't with the program. Um, and I get that. I get that. That's how that course is designed. So that's why, again, that's why I train the way that I do. And that's why I think I've, I've done well on this course, um, is, you know, a lot because of nutrition and my training, but I do think it's because of my strength as, as an athlete. Um, and also how I've approached preparing for the race from a training perspective, um, with my coach Kim. So who knows the course very well. Um, so that's kind of the last 10 K I was still taking gels, still taking Gatorade at every aid station. Um, it was still raining and I was still kind of cold. Um, but I didn't care. I just had tunnel vision. So you basically go downhill straight into the city. Brookline is like where the crowds really start to thicken. Um, you cross over the train tracks and, um, typically at this point you can see the sitco sign, which is at a mile to go. Um, but you still have several miles to like reel it in, which is torture, but it was so misty and foggy that like, I couldn't see the sitco sign until I was basically like under it. Um, so that was like kind of cool, <laughs> but I think around mile 23, I came up on one of my clients, um, who I could tell was just struggling, wasn't having like a strong finish to her race that she had planned for. Um, and I was like, good job. Like, come with me. Um, like you can do it. And she did. I was like, so freaking pumped. She, she kind of stuck with me and she freaking dropped a hammer. She told me later that her hamstring had been bothering her during the race. Um, we had talked about hamstring woes together <laughs> in previous conversations. So I totally felt for her on that. Um, but yeah, she was like, she was with me. Like I kept looking over my shoulder and she was like right there for probably two or three miles. Um, so I was really impressed by that. And that just like also helped me keep surging ahead and get into that flow state. Cause I, we were doing it together. Um, so that was really helpful in the last 10 K as well. Um, honestly, once I crested heartbreak Hill and I started to go downhill afterwards and I was still again, like taking my gels, 
my mindset both this year and last year, especially now that I know the course better this year, um, was that, okay, I know I feel good enough to finish strong. Like, I think I actually still have my legs under me, which I truly like, again, both years, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to have my legs under me. I think I'm doing things correctly, but like this course can really be deceptive for a lot of people and bite you in the butt. Um, but once I kind of figured that out, I basically just had like my game face on and my mindset was like hunt the sicko sign, like the sicko sign. If you've run Boston or if you've heard about Boston, the big sicko like fuel sign, um, is at about a mile to go. So it's around mile 25.2. Um, but you can usually see it for a couple miles in the last part of the race. We really couldn't see it this year because of all the fog, which was actually kind of nice. Like you didn't really know where it was. So I just kept that as my mantra, like eyes up, hunt the, the sicko sign, get closer to it, reel it in. And then you just have a mile to go and you can definitely make it. So that was also just like part of my mindset that helped me get into a flow state at this point of the course. And then, yeah, I basically, um, oh man, this always like makes me emotional. <laughs> it turned right on Hereford. Um, it, it, really snuck up on me last year. It was like, I like didn't even realize I was on Hereford until I was on Boylston. I was like, oh, that was like the right turn. I missed it. <laughs> um, this year I was like right on Hereford. And then I was like, oh, there is a little hill here. I didn't see this last time, but yeah, this feels like a small hill. And then I turned left on Boylston, which is just one of my favorite experiences and things and places like in the world. It's Oh, it's so crazy. Like if you ever get to run this course, like it's just, it's so iconic. <laughs> um, so it, whether it's in the rain, the sun, I've done both now. Um, good weather, I would argue for both times, but even if it's raining, it's still iconic. It's still so loud and you're still so done with the race, but also don't want it to end because it's so cool. <laughs> so I turned left on Boylston. Um, and the other thing to know is there's a little over like a quarter of a mile, like the there's probably like 0.3 to the finish on Boylston Street. So you can't really like start sprinting because the finish line's still like more than a lap around the track away, you know? Um, it is slightly down a hill, which is nice. And you can see it the whole time. And again, it's super loud. Last year I was like fist pumping and like raising the roof and having a good time. I was finishing strong, but you know, I was also kind of like enjoying it. I wasn't taking my time, but like, I was like enjoying it and taking it in. And, um, <laughs> so this year I looked down at my watch again, I hadn't really been looking at it. I knew that I was running fast in the last 10 K. I didn't quite realize how well I was doing, um, until I saw my splits after. So coming around Boylston, I was like, let me look at my watch. Like, am I close to my goal? Um, because if I am, uh, you know, I got to leave it all out there. Like I can't, I won't be satisfied, you know, even if I miss it, knowing that, you know, I didn't sprint down Boylston street. Um, so to be transparent, my a goal for this race, I thought my coach and I thought I was very capable of a sub three twenty. Um, honestly, I feel like I've been capable of that time for two years. Um, but I felt that my hamstring kept getting in the way of my confidence and being able to finish up the training the way that I wanted to. Um, so I thought that was like good angle. I was like, I know 
better than to think I just have it in the bag, especially on this course. But I think that would be a good eagle. Um, you know, on a great day, maybe I could finish even closer to like 317, which if you look at like my 26.2 time, um, I ran 26.5 miles total that day. I tried to run the tangents, but by mile two, my watch was like beeping way before the mile marker. So I was like, I don't know what I did wrong. Like I didn't weave, I did the tangents. I don't know if it's just GPS, but Anyway, um, I ran the same distance last year, so it's fine. Um, but for 26.2 miles, I, I did run about a 317. So that, again, like exactly what I thought I was capable of. Um, so that was my A goal. My B goal was to PR, which would have been under a 325, which is what I got in Boston last year. Um, and my C goal was to requalify, um, which would have been under a 330, which I thought... Again, I never take it for granted, but I thought that was very, very doable, even if I had some blips come up on course. And then D goal was just to finish and have a good time. Um, so <laughs> so I came around the corner of Boylston Street and I glanced out at my watch and it says 317.55. And I was like, oh crap, I have to sprint. Because <laughs> um, I was you know, trying to do math at the end of a marathon is impossible, but I was like, I have less than a minute to travel 0.2 miles basically, um, which is fast. <laughs> um, so, or not, I'm sorry, less than two minutes, um, to, to do that. So I was like, I have to sprint. Like I can't, even if I was like, even if I miss it, even if I come in at 320.01, I was like, I, I will be satisfied with that knowing that I, I at least left it all out there, <laughs> which I truly felt that I did. Um, so I freaking sprinted like Sarah Hall style, like chin lifted, eyes closed, like taking in Boylston, but also not wasting any time. Um, and I met the line. I let out all the ugly sounds <laughs> um, and stopped my watch and looked down and saw 319. And I was like on cloud nine. I was like, I can't believe I freaking did that today. Oh my goodness. Like I just didn't know how that was going to go from the first mile because I didn't feel that great and wasn't really looking at my watch the whole time, um, except in glimpses. Like I wasn't looking at splits, um, you know, really for most of the race. Um, so, <laughs> uh, that was really cool. I saw my client's husband in the grandstands on the right. Um, which was funny. He got some fun pictures of me. Um, thanks Kyle. And then I'm like, kind of just, you know, hobbling under the bridge. Um, I had looked up, at the bridge to see if I could see Allie Feller and I didn't see her. And I was like, Oh, maybe she's on a break. That's too bad. Like whatever. I'm on cloud nine. This is amazing. And then she announced my finish. Um, she was on the bridge. She was just in a different spot than I expected her to be in. And we made eye contact and I like pointed at her and she pointed at me and I like, like gave her the Taylor Swift, like speak now, like hand hearts. Um, <laughs> if you know, if you know, you know, um, and that was just like amazing. I was like, wow, so poetic, full circle, uh, moment and, um, love her so much. So that was really cool. And then I just hobbled through, hobbled through the finisher shoe. And I laughed when I realized I had no gels in my pockets and I counted and I was like, I took nine gels on that course. Um, threw away my water bottle, um, took two packets of scratch labs and a cup of Gatorade and a couple cups of water from every aid station in the last half of that race. <laughs> um, and it truly is one of the reasons why I think I finished so strong. And I have more thoughts on this that I will go over to 
wrap this up. This is getting super long. Um, I love you for still being here. So anyway, walked through the finish. Um, and it was really, really wet and really cold. It was raining a little bit at this point, but had started to let up. Um, got volunteers to take pictures of me at the finish line with my phone, which, um, was soaking wet. So they're blurry, which is fine. It kind of sums up how the day was. (laughs) So I kind of love that. Got my medal. Um, I later heard and was heartbroken when I heard that a lot of people who were in the back of the pack and some of the last finishers over like the five and a half hour mark did not get medals, um, because they ran out. (laughs) And uh, honestly, I'm, I want this episode to be positive because I love the Boston marathon, but some of the things that I learned of that happened are just unacceptable. Um, and I love the Boston marathon so much because of the experiences I've had at it. I love the history. Um, I love the, like the iconic parts of the course. I truly love the course, even though it's brutal. I love that it's an hour from where I live. I love the, um, I love the prestige of it. I'll be honest. Like I do, I love the Boston Marathon and I want everyone who does it to have as good of an experience that I've had because it's just like warm and fuzzies, feel good moments. Like I want them to, it's like you want someone to go to Disney World and feel the magic, right? Like that's what you want. So just the idea that some people who poured their heart into training and raising money and, you know, having their own journey to get to their start line didn't get to have maybe that experience or at minimum had a tough day and didn't get a freaking medal after like that just sends, even if it was an honest mistake by the BAA, that just sends such a bad message that we don't want to be sending. Um, I know that the people did get um, apology emails and that they're going to be sent medals in the mail, but honestly, I don't know how that mistake was made. I know other marathon majors have tons of like extra medals just in case like, I don't know how that happens. They need to figure that out. So it doesn't happen again, but I've heard actually in past years that that's happened before. Um, so if anyone in high places is listening to this, like we need to figure that out because that's unacceptable. Um, but I did get my, my unicorn medal. I got my Mylar blanket, um, and kept hobbling. And then I was waiting in line. They have like the, um, unicorn, like it's almost like wallpaper, but it's like set up for you to take a picture in front of it basically. Um, so I stood in line to do that. And then I met my friend that had sat next to me on the bus in the morning, Camille from Canada. And she, I was like, Oh my goodness. Like I knew what her goals were and we started together and she finished like right behind me. So I was like, hi, like you must've had an amazing race. How did it go? And she was like, I had the best time, like negative split the course. Like she was like, it was everything I wanted. So that just made me happy. And then we took each other's picture, um, in front of the like wallpaper, which was cool. It's just good to have that come full circle too. I just love hearing when people have their first Boston and have a magical day. Like I said, you want people to go to Disney world and feel the magic. You want people to go to the Boston marathon and feel the magic of the unicorn. Right. So that was really cool. And then, yeah. And then I, I met some other people who I think had listened to my podcast or followed me, um, hobbling through the finish too. Um, so I love, again, love it when you guys reach out. Thank you so much for saying hi and introducing yourselves. Um, I love meeting people in person. It just brings more life to what I do here on the social media, um, and the internet. (laughs) So 
that was pretty cool too. Um, so <laughs> all this to say, I have some key takeaways because if you're still listening, I love you so much for that. Um, I know there were like ups and downs to this recap and, um, hopefully you felt the magic. Um, because again, I certainly did. Boston's been very, very good to me. Um, and it's my favorite marathon. <laughs> it's really great. So here's just some key takeaways that I have now that I've run Boston twice. I've PR'd on the course both times. Um, I've BQ'd on the course both times and I've negative split the course <laughs> both times. Um, so again, I was kind of nervous going into this race, even though I said I wouldn't compare it to last race. I was just like, I really hope last time wasn't like a fluke. <laughs> like I hope that, you know, I hope that I really am prepared. Um, even though I had the same like imposter syndrome feeling last time, um, felt the same way this time. I was like, I want to be prepared. I don't want it to be a fluke. Like, you know, I want the advice that I give to work. <laughs> um, but let me go over some things for you just now that I've run it twice. And I know that it's not a fluke. <laughs> so one Boston is net downhill. Yes, it is hilly. Um, and if you are under the impression that there's only four Hills in Newton on the whole course and the rest of it's downhill, you are mistaken because it is definitely hilly. Um, I would describe it as rolling downhill. Like it is more downhill than it is uphill, but the downhill part is why we need to strength train, um, and do downhill training for this course, because that is what destroys your quads. And that is what is going to absolutely kill any chance you have of negative splitting that course. Again, even if you try to pace it correctly and nutrition, well, um, it just kind of is what it is. <laughs> so, Again, that's one of my key takeaways. That's something that I'm going to keep doing. I think that's why I like this race too, because it is kind of like a great equalizer. Um, and I also love strength training. So it's like easy for me to want to do that. So that's just kind of a personal takeaway. Um, you need to not be greedy in the beginning of the race. And what I mean by that is you can't go out flying down the hills thinking this is going to be the best day ever. Like you need to keep it in check and then you need to keep it in check even more like back off the gas and then back off the gas even more. Um, because it is very easy to be greedy in the beginning of this race. Like you don't get, I told myself, this was a mantra, if you will, mindset trick. I said, you don't get to make any judgments about how you're feeling until you crest heartbreak hill. <laughs> um, good or bad. Like if you feel bad, you don't get to judge that until you're over the hills. Cause again, marathon's really long. If you feel bad, you might feel good again. Um, if you feel good, you don't get to judge that until you're over the hills. Like you still have to be smart. So that's something that I took away. Know that you can feel bad, then good again. And that for me, at least the location of the spectators really helps with that. It was something I was looking forward to the whole time. One, because there were going to be spectators that I knew. And two, I knew that they'd get more crowded and loud and peppy as the race went on. Um, so for me, that does help me not go out too fast and then finish strong because I thrive on that, which is why I love this race. <laughs> um, also, this is a big one. Boston requires more carbohydrates. Um, so I told you I would say more about my experience with taking nine gels. So for reference, that is the most amount of gels I've ever taken, I think, on any run. <laughs> I calculated that it was about um, 80 to 90 grams of carbohydrate per hour that I ended up taking. I think I ended up taking a little bit less carb in fluid form from the aid stations the second half of the race because I was relying on the carry rate. Um, 
So to put that into context, what we recommend for marathon is between 60 and 90 grams of carbohydrate per hour. So that really wasn't crazy, which just drives home the fact that a lot of runners underestimate what they actually need. And we actually have studies now that show up to 120 grams of carbohydrate per hour might be even better if you can figure out how to tolerate that. So once I calculated that out, I kind of thought to myself, well, of course it worked out well. Like that was exactly in the range. Typically I'd probably take closer to 70 grams of carb per hour. But again, like I said, the Boston marathon, I think it just requires more carbohydrates. It's a very intense course. Um, two, that was the fastest I've ever run a marathon. So do I think it is necessary to take that many gels in any marathon to have a good outcome? I actually don't like, I, I think for some races, like it might, that might be overkill, especially if you don't like tolerate a ton of carbohydrates. Well, what I find now that I've run Boston twice is that what I think happens on that course is that you kind of get a slow burn, um, out of depleting your glycogen stores, the first half of the race, because like I said, it is rolling. Like it's not just flat. It's not just downhill. Um, there's some uphill and, you know, you might be working hard, but probably more comparable to other types of races that are more like tame in terms of terrain and elevation gain. Um, which is why I think a lot of the times the fuel plan of, yeah, like take a gel every 30 minutes or so. Um, like, I think that's decent for the first half of the race. I think if you can tolerate more than that, it might help you to front load a little bit more. And that's something that I haven't quite figured out yet, to be honest. Um, like I can't tell you if that works or not because I haven't personally tried it and had experience with it. I've had clients do it and, and do good. So do what you want with that. But um, the back half of the course. So the new insection, how I split Boston is miles one through essentially like 13 and then 13 through 16 and then the Newton section, 16 through like 21, and then the last part of the course. Um, the Newton section, if you're really depleted when you get to it, it's going to suck you dry faster than most marathons will at that point in the race. Like we've all heard of the, the wall at mile 20. Um, and in Boston, I think if you're like just ignorant and you're really not doing your nutrition correctly, you're probably going to hit the wall earlier than mile 20 because miles 16 through 20 takes so much out of you. Um, and you've already had everything taken out of you by just getting there because of where the hills are in the race. Um, I think if you're nutritioning decently well, like you're taking a gel maybe every 40, 45 minutes, like you'd probably get through mile 20. Um, where as in some marathons, you'd probably maybe get to mile 24, 25 with that method and be okay. Um, Boston, I just think it requires more carbohydrates. <laughs> um, that's been my experience. Like I really felt like I couldn't take enough carbohydrates during the hill section of that course and the back half. Like every time I took one, it felt like I was hitting like the mushroom power in like Mario Kart. I was like, every time I took one, I was like, okay, we're staying like our head staying above water. Um, and we're able to like maintain the pace and speed up a little bit and get over that like hump of exhaustion. Um, so that's why I just kept taking them. Like they were sitting well, I was fine. I had them. So I basically just kept throwing things at the wall. Um, and it kept sticking. So that's how I would describe it. And I've had that experience twice now at Boston. So in the future, what I might try 
is taking a gel like every two to three miles the first half of the race to see if I can evenly space it out a little bit more. Um, but to be honest, it's really not a big deal as long as you don't get in your own way mentally and you have the gels on hand to do the method that I did do both times, which was do what I would normally do for the first half of the course and then start taking gels every two miles <laughs> for the second half of the course. Um, because honestly, I felt great doing it. Um, I think that for a lot of races that might not be super necessary, but I think for the Boston course, you just need more carbohydrates. Um, and one way to do that is through liquids, but you'd have to carry it and you'd have to have it on you, um, at that point in the course. And another way to do that is through like gels or chews. Um, so that helped me a ton. And that's something that I'm going to like literally run with for next time. Okay. So next takeaway is that the weather and logistics of Boston are a complete wild card in terms of being able to like get a PR at Boston. Like I am very well aware that again, like I said, it's not a fluke that I got to be PR both times at Boston, roughly a six minute PR this time. Um, and a three minute PR or a two minute PR last time. Um, but I did have like reasonable weather both times. Um, and like I said, leading the days leading up to Boston this year, it was like 85 degrees. Um, and that, that could have been really tough. Um, or it could have been 2018 and, you know, raining sideways at 40 miles an hour. Like I'm well aware that when you sign up for Boston, you're signing up for potentially not the best weather. <laughs> I live in new England. Like I, I get that that's a factor. Um, so I've really gotten lucky both times. Honestly, if it was going to be a case where it was going to be really hot or it was going to be conditions that were very black and white, like this is not a PR day. Like, you know, you're going to come within several minutes probably of your goal. I probably would have considered fun running it and like doing a marathon in another month. Um, and trying to do that. I would have talked to my coach first. If she's listening to this. She might've been like, no, you would not be doing that. But I don't know. That would have been like my backup plan because I just, it's really important for me that I enjoy Boston because it's been like just a process for me to get there. And I love the race so much. So like, I don't want to have like bad experiences there if it's within my control. Um, so I got lucky. Um, so we'll see what happens in future years. Um, and other takeaway is that Boylston Street's the best. It's my favorite place. Um, it's so cool. I love finish lines. I've been through eight marathon finish lines now. Um, I've repeated the Philadelphia Marathon twice, and I've repe repeated Boston twice now. Um, so, I mean, finish lines are the best, and Boston's my favorite. Like, I just feel very well taken care of when I'm at Boston. I really appreciate the um, iconic nature of the course. I love how many people are just around on marathon weekend and Monday. I love that the street is closed down. I love that Boston's a small city. So no matter where you are in the city, people like know the marathon's going on because it's not a big city. Um, and I love, I just love how much of a big deal, um, New England and Massachusetts and Boston and the world really make of the day. Um, and that being said, it's a hardcore. So if you're listening to this and you're like, man, Holly, you've had two really good days at Boston. Like I just can't put a good performance down on that course. Like you are not alone. This course is not for the faint of heart. If it was like your first marathon, which I had a bunch of people where it was their first marathon, um, they're running for charities or they got bibs through other organizations. 
This is a heck of a first marathon. It is a monster of a course. Even the goat himself, Kipchoge, had a bad day at Boston, um, which one, I always love to see and support Elliot Kipchoge. I think he's awesome and love to see him win always. But two, very validating on how hard the course is and also validating that he's a human. He works really hard. Um, and just, I think puts even more credibility to his performances. If you catch my drift. So, um, if you had a bad day at Boston, you're still awesome. (laughs) Um, it's a tough course. Um, and I honestly, like I said, my key takeaways were that carb loading is necessary. Um, I think more carbohydrates on course are beneficial for Boston because of how the terrain is. Um, I think that the weather's a huge factor. You can get dehydrated really easily. If it's really warm, you can get cold really easily because you're kind of going fast and then slowing down if it gets cold. Um, but the cheers and everything will, will bring you home to Boylston street. It's just chills. Every time I think about it, it's the best. So if you're still here, thank you so much for listening to this recap episode. I think I got all the details. I'm sure I missed some things, Um, but I just had the best time at Boston. Um, Again, there were some things that I wasn't really pleased with, with how some things were handled at the race, but um, it's my favorite race. I want everyone to love it. I want it to do better by everyone too. I know that it's not for everyone and it's not everyone's favorite and that's okay if that's how you feel. Um, but it is my favorite race. I'm just really happy. I had a good experience and I'm really excited to go back because I'd be cute again. Um, and don't plan to run a fall marathon. So (laughs) I'm pretty pumped that I get to, again, focus on some shorter distances, some strength work. And the next thing on my calendar is the Mount Washington road race where I get to run up Mount Washington by me. Um, So pretty excited to put that on the calendar. That's going to be a super different training experience compared to this one. Um, But I'm super sore the next day recording this. My legs are totally trashed. My quads are trashed. So I'm going to recover before, you know, I get anything else on the calendar, but thank you scratch labs. So, so much for sponsoring this episode, but also for all the PRs, honestly, best product. Um, my favorite hydration product. If you haven't tried it out yet, make sure you check out the link and discount code in the show notes, along with all of the other things that I'll link to like my outfit, um, my master classes, and my resources on how to fuel. Um, like I do, like I tell my clients, I try to practice what I preach so that everyone can get PRs. By the way, shout out to my Boston Marathon group. They all crushed it. Um, I had one person come within two minutes of her marathon PR, and this was only her second marathon. Her first marathon was the virtual Boston Marathon that she ran at home on a very flat course. And then this was her second marathon, and she came within two minutes of her PR. That's incredible. Um, And she had a really great time on the course and felt great at the end. Another client um, basically was worried he wasn't even going to be able to like run the race because he felt a little burnt out. Um, And through uh, some mindset stuff, some fueling and some strength training, he actually ran his second fastest time on Boston course ever and felt good the whole time, which he said has never happened. Super pleased with that. Another client have her first Boston and the hills were tough, but she was tougher and she implemented her fuel plan to plan as well. And so many more stories. So shout out to my group who just absolutely overcame so many things to crush this day as well. 
Another thought that I had and that I was kind of excited to see what happened um, for this particular race is that this was my first marathon racing in super shoes. Um, So the carbon plated shoes, which if you're like, what are those? Um, uh, You should go check out Running Explained podcast. Elizabeth did like a whole episode with a shoe expert on carbon plated shoes. Um, because I'm just not going to do them justice here. But basically, there is research showing that this particular type of shoe technology can help make you faster for certain sectors of the running population, for which definitely applies to me. Um, So I was really curious just to see like, you know, they say there's up to like maybe a 4% improvement. Um, So I was just curious to see how that panned out for me. So for me, like in a time perspective, that could be about eight minutes. Um, I took about six minutes off of my PR without super shoes. So I was like, I mean, I think my training and my nutrition and my experience definitely helped me get the PR, but I'm also not going to lie. Like the super shoes probably help too. Um, I'm not sure if there is a bigger difference on like flat versus hilly terrain. I've been told by my coach that they're not recommended for like uphill running, um, but I'm not sure how that applies to like downhill running or hilly terrain. But um, I was really excited to to try them out. Um, I had been training in the Brooks Hypernian Elites, um, which is Brooks Super Shoe, um, carbon plated shoe. I raced my half marathon in them last year, um, and they were super comfortable. And they've been a shoe that works really well for me. So that was just something also that I wanted to mention here because that was one of the other differences between last year's race and this year's race. Last year's race, I just hadn't found a super shoe that I liked or trusted enough to do like a whole marathon in. I had tried like the Nike Vaporflies and the Alpha Flies, and they just did not work for my foot. Like I'm pretty sure I would have gotten a stress fracture in those because they just weren't hitting or fitting my like foot shape correctly. Um, so I ended up running the race in Brooks glycerins, which is what I typically train in. And it was great. Like I love my glycerins would have done it again, but it was really cool to just be able to wear, you know, a fast shoe. So I figured I would mention that here as well. Um, I saw a lot of super shoes and carbon plated shoes in, um, the Boston marathon course. So I think that is definitely something that, um, while not necessary is becoming more and more popular in the running community. And one last thing, if you want to run the Boston Marathon, if that is like a desire that you have, um, I believe in you. You can do it. You can raise money through a charity. Um, You can ask if your company or running club gets any bibs and enter into a lottery through them to get that. Um, You can qualify. If that's on your list and you're like, can I? You can. Um, I truly believe that a lot of people can qualify for this race. Um, probably more people than they would think. (laughs) So if it's on your bucket list, if you want to do it, if the hype this past week has really been like scratching an itch that you really want to go for, um, go for it, man. Like it took me several years to get to the start line of this race. And, um, it was a dream that I had that I didn't know if I'd be capable of, which is what made it so scary and so special. Um, and for me, at least it was like totally worth the hype. It was totally worth the hard work. And that just made it that much more special. If you got to the end of this two hour podcast episode and you're like, eh, I don't really want to run Boston. Um, I'm surprised you're still here. So like, thank you for still being here. So I'm not sure if the people who would be in this category would actually get to listen to what I'm about to say. But um, if you don't want to run Boston, if you're like, I don't even want to run a marathon. Um, 
yeah, you're still a real runner. Like you don't have to, it's all good. Um, I think one of the coolest things about the marathon world majors is that it really connects, um, the running community together. Um, marathons tend to get, you know, televised. Um, they tend to get a lot of coverage by the media. They attract, you know, tens of thousands of people. Um, they help grow the economy for the city that they're in. So that's kind of one reason why it brings people together, even if you never want to run a marathon. But if you're a runner, you kind of like know the marathon's happening, right? So I think that's great. I also can definitely think it can elicit like feelings of like FOMO, like fear of missing out um, and make people feel very excluded if they're not there. And if that's you, I encourage you to kind of um, maybe get curious as to where those feelings come from. Is it because you really want to be there and you're trying to work towards that and you need to put a plan in place? Um, or is it because you don't want to be there and you're making and people you know are making you feel like you're not like worthy or a real runner or whatever if you're not there? And just maybe explore where those are coming from. And if you need to, like get off social media when you know a major marathon's happening, like remove yourself from like the bubble of hype because it's a lot. Like if it's it's a lot if you do want to be there and you do have FOMO and it's a lot if you don't really want to be there and it's making you feel like some sort of way. Um, and know that for Boston Marathon, I know this can be even more exaggerated because of the exclusive, I can't even talk, exclusion of the race. It's very exclusive. Um, and I promise you every single year, Mar you know, Marathon Tuesday comes around and the race is over. They're packing up the finish line and everyone goes back to their normal lives. So if that's something that really gets to you, know that this too shall pass um, and the world will continue to go on. That always helped me um, when I got FOMO around Marathon Monday if I wasn't there. Um, and if you want to come like volunteer or participate in the events at the race, uh, super fun. Like I would love to be like a guide um, for like visually impaired athletes. Um or guide for athletes who need a guide. Um, like, I think that would be really cool. I would love to volunteer. So there's a lot of other ways to be involved in this marathon and other marathon world majors. If it's something that you really just want to be around for. And I would argue too, if you're not running the marathon itself, you probably get to enjoy some of the stuff that goes around the marathon and the expo and all the events even more because you don't have to worry about like draining your social battery and trying to save it up for a race. Like you can just go hard and go participate in everything, um, which can make you feel really connected to the experience too. So if that's something that interests you, um, yeah, maybe plan like a little vacation uh, next time for next year and do it now before things sell out because they sell out really fast. <laughs> so that's kind of a, my two cents on that. Um, but I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. It was a long one. So if you're still here, thank you. Love you so much. I'm glad you're enjoying the podcast. If you are, please leave it a five-star rating and review on your podcast player of choice. I'm going to go recover my legs now and happy running.